Well, I totally forgot to put this on. So I'm going to ask you guys to turn to Luke chapter 7. And Josh, I'm going to go ahead and throw this headset on real quick. Carrie, thank you for leading us. It's such a joy to sing and to worship the Lord, to reflect on these truths. It's easy to get distracted and forget about technology sometimes, which is a blessing. Our text today is going to be Luke chapter 7. I'm going to look at verses 18 through 23 together. I'm going to read that text and then we'll pray together. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Lord Jesus, as we approach your word, we pray that you would attend to the preaching of your word in such a way that our faith would be strengthened today, that we would have a true vision of who you really are, what you are really like, that our hearts might be moved towards worship and faith and obedience. I pray that your spirit would enable the clear communication of these truths and that your spirit would also open hearts and ears to receive the truth, that you would expose and challenge unbelief that you would encourage and help those who are weak, that you would bless and humble those who know these truths and already hold them so dearly. Lord, unite us in the truth of your word today. Strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think all of us have to answer a lot of questions on a daily basis. We ask questions, we answer questions, and some of those questions are fairly simple, Non-consequential, you know, what do you want to have for lunch? What time is baseball practice? You know, things like that. But there's other questions that we have to answer that have a lot of impact. Uh, For some of you, it will be questions on a college entrance exam that determines your score, that determines where you might be able to go to school. For some of you, it will be questions in a job interview that impacts where you're able to work and how you're able to support your family and pay your bills. Some of you have either asked or answered the big question, will you marry me, right? That's a big question that affects the rest of your life. But there is an even greater question that we all have to answer. It's a greater question that impacts our eternal destiny. Who is Jesus? That's the question. How we answer that question is of utmost importance. If Jesus is not who he says he is, then to use Lewis's famous formulation, he's either a liar or he's a lunatic. Claiming to be the son of God, claiming to be the savior of the world. But if Jesus is who he says he is, 
then he is Lord. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God, which means he is worthy of our faith. It means his word is true. It means his promises are sure. And it means that the salvation Jesus offers is real. Luke knows this. And so he, throughout his gospel, carefully records for us the striking details of the life of Christ, his ministry, his glorious miracles, his profound teachings. And he records all of this so that his first reader, Theophilus, according to chapter 1, verse 1, might have certainty of the things that he had been taught. And Luke's gospel serves us the same way. That we too, like Theophilus of old, might have certainty concerning the things that we have heard about Jesus. That we might be confident and assured in our faith. In Luke chapter 7, we find a key character in Luke's gospel popping up once again. It's John the Baptist. We've seen John before, haven't we? We first meet him as he's leaping for joy while still in his mother's womb. Because Mary has come who's bearing the Messiah. We've seen John preaching like a fiery prophet of old out in the wilderness, telling people to repent because the judgment of God is coming. We've seen him baptizing them in the Jordan River, even baptizing Jesus. But now we meet John again, and it's near the end of his life. And John, this bold prophet, this joyful prophet, he's wrestling. He's questioning. He's grappling with his own understanding of who Jesus is. And in our our passage today, in this exchange that takes place between Jesus and John by way of these two messengers, I think we find some encouragement for our own faith, encouragement for us for times when we may question, times when we might wrestle with our understanding of who Jesus is. I want to offer this morning three encouragements, just simple observations, three encouragements for those whose faith may be wavering And the first we find in, first encouragement we find in verses 18 through 20. And the first encouragement is this Jesus welcomes the questions of those who are fighting for faith. He welcomes the questions of believers who are sincerely wrestling and fighting for faith. We see this in verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. All these things refers to the fact that Jesus has just raised a widow's son from the dead, that Jesus has just healed a centurion's servant who was sick by merely saying the word, that Jesus had been preaching this profound sermon on the plain and all the different miracles that attended it. They report all of that to John. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, and he sent them with questions. John here is actually in prison. His ministry had began, if you remember, even before Jesus' ministry. Before Jesus stepped into the spotlight, John was there preparing the way. And his ministry had then overlapped with Jesus' ministry for a while, But now, Jesus is increasing and John is decreasing, which John was fine with. He embraced that reality. And the reason he's in prison was because of his fearless rebuke of an immoral political power. You remember the name Herod the Great? Herod was the the king who was over this, this area in Israel. He was the king that had slaughtered all of those baby boys in Bethlehem when he heard about the birth of the Messiah. His family was notorious for their corruption. 
You could do like this HBO special on the Herods, and it would be rated M for mature, or whatever it is they rate it. Um, They were immoral, they were perverse, they were corrupt. We know Herod the Great killed all those babies. Well, when he died, his territory was split up into four different regions, and it was given to four of his many sons. Herod Antipas, one of these four sons, is the one who ruled over the region of Galilee. And Herod Antipas had an adulterous relationship with his half-brother Philip's wife. And Philip's wife was actually Philip's niece. So it's all confusing and complicated. But Herod had divorced his own wife, and then he convinced his sister-in-law, Herodias, to divorce also and to marry him. So this was sinful, and it was public. Everybody knew about this. It wasn't some secret scandal. And John the Baptist, being the prophet that he was, he called it like he saw it, and it landed him in jail. In Luke chapter 3, 19, if you remember a few pages back, it said, Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him, by John, for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, he added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Of all the things that Herod did that were wrong, this one he added on to the rest. He threw John for speaking the truth, for simply upholding God's moral standard. He throws John in prison. John spent two years in this remote fortress in the south called Machairus. This outpost, this fortress was on this high rocky vantage point on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. It's remote. It's up on this cliff. And John is there for two years. He's alone. No more preaching, no more baptizing. His mission of preparing the way for the Messiah is pretty much over. But he's hearing about everything that Jesus is doing. As his disciples come to him to get a word from him and to report what's going on to him, they are telling him, listen to all of this that Jesus is doing. And it prompts John to send two of these disciples to ask a crucial, crucial question. Verse 19. This question is, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Are you the one who is to come? You see, John knew that the Old Testament foretold of a coming Messiah and that this Messiah, this king, was central to God's kingdom purposes. I'm just going to take you on a fast tour through the Old Testament because John's expectation of this one who is to come, this isn't something he got just from his own hopeful, wishful thinking. This expectation of one to come wasn't just part of the culture and tradition and society. John got this from the Bible. Genesis 3.15 says, One is going to come who will crush the head of the serpent. That's an image of victory and triumph. Genesis 49.10 says that of the descendants of Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. This is an image of royalty. It says the ruler's staff will not depart from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That's what John was looking for, that coming king. Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses writes, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. He's waiting for this greatest prophet who is yet to come. Psalm 110, David writes, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. John is waiting for this king who will put all his enemies under his feet. 
You all are familiar with Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah writes, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. They're waiting for that king. Isaiah 11 verse 1 says, There's coming forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. That's who they're waiting for. Isaiah 40 verse 10, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. They're waiting for God to show up. Isaiah 59, 20 says, A redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Jeremiah, verse 23, verse 5. Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. That's what John is waiting for. Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Zechariah 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, prophesies of both John and this coming Messiah. Behold, I send my messenger, that's John, and he will prepare the way for me, before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And John says, are you him? Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? At one point, John had been convinced that Jesus truly was the coming one, God's anointed, Israel's Messiah. That's why he leapt for joy in his mother's womb as he was filled with the Holy Spirit, even sensing before he was born that this Jesus is the one. He had declared when Jesus approached him in the Jordan, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. After baptizing Jesus, John the Baptist had witnessed the Spirit of God descending upon him like a dove. And he had heard the voice of the Father declaring from heaven, you are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. That's royal language as well as divine. So John had witnessed this and even declared this, but now as John sits in prison and his justice is not being upheld, righteousness doesn't seem to be being established. The Romans have not been driven out. Jesus is not setting up his kingdom. John has questions. Jesus, are you really the one? What happened? So many of those passages talk about the establishment of a great kingdom. And even John himself had, had preached, rightly so, about the judgment that is coming. If you remember back in Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 16, 
I think this really gives us insight into John's expectation. Luke records in chapter 3, verse 16, that John says, He who is mightier than I is coming. There is one coming. There's this language again of the one who is to come. He who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This imagery of baptizing with fire is about judgment. We see that in the very next verse, verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John says this great one who's to come is going to separate the the chaff from the wheat, the believers from the unbelievers, the righteous from the unrighteous. He's going to save his people and judge his enemies. That's what John had been preaching. But from his vantage point, in the remote fortress of Machairus, stuck in prison for probably over a year at this point, From John's vantage point, there's no judgment happening. There's no threshing of the chaff and the wheat. The wicked have not been judged. The Romans haven't been thrown out. Israel has not been restored. In fact, John's in prison because the wicked are still ruling. He's suffering persecution. He's isolated. He's unable to preach. And he's facing the prospect at this moment of either rotting in jail for who knows how long or being put to death. So John is wrestling with some feelings of confusion. I don't think he's doubting Jesus. I think he's doubting himself. He's questioning whether or not he really got it right in identifying Jesus as the Messiah. John is really the last in a long line of Old Testament prophets. And these Old Testament prophets, Peter tells us, this was what consumed them, to try to perceive who is this Messiah and what is his ministry going to include. First Peter 1.10 says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The prophets were always trying to figure it out. And I think Peter is second-guessing himself, and he's still trying to figure it out. He is searching and inquiring carefully, like the prophets before him. He thought Jesus was the one to come, but now the circumstances are telling him a different story. Oftentimes, we wrestle with doubts. We wrestle with questions, and our faith can waver because of trials, because of adversity, because of opposition, We see evil and sorrow in the world, and we sometimes experience it ourselves, and it can rattle our faith. For us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, faith in Christ may require confronting those doubts, facing them head on. And that's what John is doing. He's asking the right question. Are you the one to come? Because if so, you're the one I need to believe in. But if you're not the one to come, and my expectation was off, then I want my expectation to be conformed to the truth and to what Scripture says. So he sends two disciples. Sort of in the spirit of Deuteronomy 19.15, there's two witnesses here who will be able to establish credible testimony. And he tells them exactly what to say. And Luke records the question in verse 19. Are you the one to come, or shall we look for another? And then Luke really focuses us in on this question because he repeats it again in verse 20. 
He could have just said the disciples asked Jesus, but he actually spells it out again. When the men had come to him, to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, and then he spells it out again, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? This question is emphasized twice. It's repeated verbatim because this indeed is the crucial question that must be answered for John and for his disciples and for us as well. Is Jesus the one? And what does Jesus do when the two disciples come and ask this question? Well, notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He welcomes this question. He doesn't scold them. He doesn't say, wow, John, I'm really disappointed in you that you flaked out. No, he welcomes this question. Why is that? Well, I want to make clear that the question John is asking is different than some of the other questions Jesus will have to deal with. This is not the skeptical challenge of the scribes and the Pharisees who are trying to trip Jesus up. That's not what this question is. This is not the hard-hearted attitude that Jesus encountered in Nazareth, where the people demanded proof, where they said, physician, heal yourself. Put your money where your mouth is. If you're really the Messiah, then prove it to us, demanding a sign. It's not that kind of question. You see, the way that John asks this question actually shows great honor and respect to Jesus. Because John is waiting and ready and willing to believe whatever it is, whatever the answer is that Jesus gives him. He's asking Jesus to confirm his faith, but he's also seeking the truth. He wants to know if he got it right. Are you the one? Did I misunderstand the prophecies? Because if so, I need to change. This is not some sort of dishonoring question towards Jesus. You see, John had heard all the stories. His disciples were telling him about the kinds of things that were happening, the kinds of things that Jesus was doing, which caused John, I think, to hold on to hope. He's still holding on to hope that Jesus may be the one, but this doesn't make sense to me because this isn't looking like what I thought it would look like. So he needs assurance, and he comes to Jesus with his questions. I think Jesus recognizes John's difficulty. He recognizes in the question John's humility and his sincerity. And listen, Jesus welcomes those kinds of questions. He welcomes the questions of those who are fighting for faith. I think this is much like the father in Mark chapter 9 who cried out to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. So how does Jesus respond? Well, the first encouragement is that Jesus welcomes these questions, the questions of those who fight for faith. But notice Jesus' response in verses 21 through 22. Jesus strengthens faith through the ministry of his word. Jesus strengthens faith through the ministry of his word. Verse 21, In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now you might wonder, why didn't Jesus just say, yes? That would have been a lot simpler, right? But a simple answer would not have helped John. It would not have helped his disciples. 
Jesus does something far more convincing than give a simple answer. He gives them an object lesson. He says, John wants to know if I'm really the one who is coming. Watch this. Watch this. It says, in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues. In that hour, he healed many people of evil spirits as well. He's showing his power over disease. He shows his power over the demons. He even shows his power over physical dysfunction, blindness. And it's really beautiful the way it's written here in the Greek language. It says that on those who are blind, he bestowed sight. And this word has the same root as our word for grace. That he gave them sight. He graced them with the ability to see. This is not a display of judgment. It's not a display of wrath, the kinds of things that John was expecting. It's a very different display. It's a ministry, rather, of mercy. And each one of these miraculous healings pictures salvation. Jesus is giving spiritual wholeness, physical wholeness, physical and spiritual freedom as well. This gracious power can only be explained By the confession of the crowd in chapter 7, verse 16, if you just look right up the page, remember what they said when Jesus raised the widow's son to life? They said, truly, God has visited his people. That's the only explanation for these kinds of things taking place. So he does all of that. As these two delegates from John are standing there watching, they see all that happening. And then he turns and gives his answer to these two messengers. Verse 22 He answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. I can't help but wonder if there's a little bit of irony that he's healing the blind and causing the deaf to hear in a physical sense. And then he tells these two followers of John to go tell him what they have seen and heard, that he is in the process of giving them spiritual sight. He's in the process of helping them to hear what they really need to hear. And then he tells them to give a specific message. Go tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He says, here's the answer to your questions, guys. He gives this summary list of what it is that they've seen. And the words of Jesus here are loaded with significance. He's not telling them something they don't know. Hey, did you see that deaf guy I just healed? No, they had seen that. Did you see the person that was afflicted by demons that I just set free? No, they had seen that. When he gives them this list of things to report to John, these words are loaded with significance, a significance that John would have immediately recognized because everything Jesus says is a reference to the book of Isaiah. Every one of the things that Jesus says, tell John, comes to us directly from this prophet in the Old Testament. Isaiah prophesied of the one who is to come, and he described the kingdom that this Messiah would establish. The coming of the kingdom would mean restoration, which all of Jesus' miracles portray. Just listen to some of these verses from Isaiah. Isaiah 29, 18. In that day, the day when God's Messiah arrives, the day when the kingdom is established, In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. Jesus says, go tell John that's happening. 
Isaiah 35, 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Jesus tells John's followers, go tell them that that's happening. Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Jesus tells John's disciples, go tell John, that's happening too. The dead are being raised. Isaiah 61, verses 1, starting in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. He says, go tell John that the good news is being proclaimed to the poor. Now, this passage from Isaiah 61 is actually the same passage that Jesus quoted in the synagogue at Nazareth. Remember that? He went there and preached from the scroll of Isaiah. But Jesus had stopped partway through that passage. He said that he had come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But then he stopped. He didn't finish the next phrase, which, which says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus didn't quote that part because it wasn't time for that yet. It wasn't time for the vengeance and judgment to fall. The vengeance of God's judgment will be revealed at the second coming of Jesus when he returns. But Jesus wasn't there to do that just yet. So John may not fully understand that. John may not fully understand that Jesus came the first time to suffer as a servant, and then he would come again to conquer as a king. But Jesus is telling him, listen, the words of Isaiah are starting to come true. He was assuring John that, yes, he is Israel's Messiah. John didn't miss it. He got it right. It's pretty amazing Jesus was preaching Christ from the word to John. Jesus strengthens faith through the ministry of his word. There's a simple truth here for us. When we waver, when we wrestle, when we doubt, we need to hear the word. That's what we need. Faith comes by hearing, Paul tells the Romans, and hearing by the word. We need to see Christ in the scripture. And as we consider him, as we consider his words, as we consider his works, as we consider his glory and his promises, the truths found in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, what happens is that we are strengthened and we are assured and we are comforted when we're in the middle of difficulties that cause us to question. We need to hear the word. We need to see Christ. Listen, if you wrestle with doubts and questions and you want assurance, don't withdraw from Christ. Don't avoid the scriptures and try to go figure it all out on your own. Learn this from John the Baptist. Run to Jesus. Receive his word. Consider his goodness. Consider his glory. And Jesus himself will strengthen you. He ministers to us to strengthen our faith through his word. That's an encouragement we can draw from this text, and it models something for us as well. So Jesus welcomes the questions of those fighting for faith. 
Jesus, secondly, strengthens faith through the ministry of his word. And then a final encouragement, number three, Jesus blesses those who embrace him by faith. He blesses those who embrace him by faith. Verse 23, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This final phrase in Jesus' answer is an invitation to faith, and it's a promise of blessing. We have to ask the question, what does it mean, blessed is the one who is not offended by me? This word offended has the idea of being trapped. It portrays being tripped up over something, getting stuck on something, even stumbling over something. And this phrase as well is also a reference to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 through 15 says this. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. That's an invitation to faith. That's a call to believe in God. Isaiah continues, verse 14, Isaiah chapter 8. And he, the Lord, will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Isaiah chapter 8 is a call to faith, and it's a prophecy that many in Israel would stumble over the one to come. Simeon, when he meets baby Jesus, says something similar, that this child is appointed for the rise and fall of many in Israel. You see, people had certain expectations for the Messiah, expectations of what he would be like, what he would do. And when Jesus didn't kick out the Romans, they were disappointed. When Jesus confronted their sin and their hypocrisy and their self-righteous pride, They were indignant. They choked on his teaching. They were outraged at his claims. Many were offended by him. People today are not much different. A lot of people want their own personal Jesus, right? A Jesus who always affirms them and never calls them to repent. A Jesus who helps them to fulfill their dreams and goals, not a Jesus who tells us to count the cost. Many want a Jesus who will keep them from pain and difficulty, not a Jesus that allows us to go through trials. People want a Jesus who will advance their social cause, not a Jesus who asserts himself as Lord of all. And when Jesus doesn't live up to their expectations, when Jesus doesn't fit the mold that they have created for him, they are offended. They won't accept him, they stumble. But Jesus does things on his terms, not ours. Jesus does things in his timing, not ours. He does things for his glory, not ours. Jesus has shared all these references to Isaiah to underscore the fact that he's not falling short of the biblical expectations of who the Messiah will be. He's just falling short of the human expectations. The human expectations for the way in which he would come and the timing of his judgment. 
So we have to, have to ask the question, what about us? Will we stumble or take offense? Or will we believe in Christ? Will we trust him? If we do, Jesus promises blessing. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This is like another one of those beatitudes we saw back in Luke chapter 6. It's just hanging out over here, not with the rest. But remember what Jesus said, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are you when, when people persecute you and say all kinds of things about you for my sake. There's a blessing of, of God's grace. There's a blessing of an eternal reward. There's the blessing of receiving the very kingdom itself, life and riches and joy and glory in the age to come. Jesus says, blessed are you. And here he says something similar. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Those who will humble themselves and receive Christ and receive his condemnation of sin, in humility he promises to raise us up. Those who will mourn over their disobedience to his law, he will comfort. He will comfort with his grace. Those who believe in Jesus and his promises will be forgiven and justified and declared righteous in God's sight. Those who are not offended but believe in Jesus will be adopted into the family of God and made citizens of Christ's kingdom. Those who are not offended will experience the glorious restoration that is promised in Isaiah. That will become our experience. The eternal glory of the Messiah will become the eternal joy of the believer. So when Jesus says blessed is the one, he's talking about those kinds of blessings. Many of you have experienced even the immediate blessing that comes when you simply take Jesus at his word and trust in him. You've experienced the hope and the peace and the joy and the wonder that comes when you surrender to the lordship of Jesus and trust his word. We sang it earlier. Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus and to take him at his word. There's a blessing in the here and now, and there's an even greater blessing in the age to come. Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. <clears throat> Jesus understands that sometimes it can be hard to believe. He understands that there's real challenges to our faith. There's difficulties that must be overcome. But Jesus says to John, and he says to us, that he blesses those who embrace him by faith. Jesus didn't answer all of John's questions, and he doesn't answer all of ours, but that promise is enough. That is really what we need. So who do you believe Jesus to be? Have you come to trust in him as the one, the only son of God? Israel's Messiah and the Savior of the world who died for sin and rose again on the third day. Do you believe this? Will you fight for faith like John when things are difficult? Will you run to Jesus? Will you receive his word and allow him to minister to you to strengthen you and confirm you in the faith so that you are able to stand and withstand when there's opposition, when there's persecution, when there's suffering? When there's attacks, he promises great blessing to those who will not be offended by him. 
My prayer is that we as a church would learn from this text to see these encouraging realities, that Jesus welcomes the right kind of questions, the questions of those who are fighting for faith, that he strengthens our faith through the ministry of his word, and that he promises a blessing to us as we come to embrace him by faith. May that be a blessing that we seek each and every day. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your kindness and your mercy that you are, as the Old Testament prophet said, not the kind of savior who quenches a smoldering wick or who breaks a bruised reed. You're gentle and patient with us. You will not tolerate pride. You will not tolerate antagonistic questions. You don't owe an explanation to anyone, but those who come in humility with sincere questions, wrestling for faith, you welcome us and you strengthen us and you bless us. Lord, thank you, Jesus, for that that grace, your kindness, that you are a good shepherd who knows how to be gentle with your sheep. I pray, Lord, that if there are some here today wrestling for faith, that you would grant them assurance through your word that they would consider who you are and what you've done and what the scriptures say about you, and I pray that they would cling to you by faith. Lord, for those moments when we are too weak to hold on to you, I'm so thankful that you promise to hold on to us, that you preserve us, you keep us. Or if it weren't for that, none of us would stand. So thank you for your grace. We pray that you'd be glorified as we seek to understand and believe your word. Amen.